Hi, friends, and welcome to another episode of the End of Sport podcast. Uh, my name is Nathan Coleman-Lamb, and I'm joined today by my friend Johanna Mellis. Hey, Johanna. Hey, how are you? I'm doing well. Uh, I'm I'm thrilled that we're recording again. We're in the mm-hmm. midst of a run of recording. I'm not sure when exactly we're releasing this one. Um, so I don't want to say this is the beginning because you may have already seen a few episodes come through your feed, but certainly we intend to have a good batch to share with you um, kind of on an ongoing basis here through the summer. So please keep looking out for our episodes because we have some really terrific people that we've had the opportunity to sit down with and have some of the kind of conversations we've wanted to have um, over this extended period of time where we've been just a little bit busy and it's been difficult for us to sit down. And today we get to share with you an episode that I have really long wanted to record with uh, communications scholar uh, Zach Furness, who has worked on football and other subjects in his scholarly work. But um, more importantly, or equally importantly, he also has experienced kind of what football means as a cultural institution in his own life because his father was a professional player with the Pittsburgh Steelers' famous Iron Curtain in the 1970s. And so football was really foundational in shaping Zach's life in all sorts of different ways. Uh, And so we've had the pleasure to sit down with Zach and sort of explore both through his own experiences and the kind of personal narrative and autoethnography what football has meant and then kind of bring that into conversation with the kind of academic intellectual insights that he has amassed in his life as someone who has thought about the kind of representation and harm of um, football as an institution. So uh, we won't talk for too much longer now because I think we want to throw it right to that episode. But uh, please do Take the moment to rate and review the podcast if you wouldn't mind. Please share with um, your friends and other people you know who might be interested, not just this episode or the recent episodes coming out, but the fact that uh, if you're new to the end of sport, we really have a very significant archive at this point of well over 100 episodes. The vast majority of the episodes we've recorded are what we would call evergreen, which is to say that they're not topical. It's not really important that you listen to them when they were recorded Mm -hmm. because we have been talking to people who have either lived sport sport or thought and analyze sport in ways that are meant to be lasting. And so those conversations provide you kind of a window into a way of understanding some aspect of high-performance sporting culture uh, and the harms associated with it. Uh, anything else for you, Joanna? I don't think so. I guess just wanted to say uh, thanks, listeners, for like sticking with us and um, being understanding of our schedules. You know, it's it's been a bit a wild couple years, but we're yeah, we're just excited to kind of record some ep- episodes together and kind of reconnect and have these wonderful conversations. And so yeah, we love to hear your feedback. We love to hear that people are still using these episodes in their classrooms or that they're you know really reframing how they think sport or at least having some impact on it. So yeah, reach out to us. Let us know. And uh, we're still on. Twitter for now <laughs> as of early June, you know, we'll kind of see what happens thereafter. Um, and yeah, so thanks so much for y'all support. That's right. Okay. So with that said, let's, uh, let's throw it now to our conversation with Zach Fern. Zach Furness is Associate Professor of Communications at Penn State Greater Allegheny. He is the author of One Less Car, Bicycling and the Politics of Automobility, 
editor of Punkademics, and co-editor of the NFL, Critical and Cultural Perspectives. Importantly, he is also author of the excellent journal article, Reframing Concussions, Masculinity and NFL Mythology in League of Denial, in the journal Popular Communications. And he is a great friend of the show. Welcome, Zach. Hi, thanks so much for having me on. It's uh, oh, it's, it's, it's really great to meet both of you for the first time, and I uh, get to hear your voices in actual conversation, and um, I'm a huge, huge fan of the podcast, so thank you. Uh, that's uh, super kind of you to say, and I, I want to be really clear. This is actually um, a conversation I've wanted to have since the very beginning of when we started this mm-hmm. show, and it just sort of hadn't come together for me yet Um but I'm, I'm just incredibly excited to have this conversation because um, Zach is a perfect person for us to talk to kind of for two reasons. Because he is a scholar who focuses <laughs> precisely on the issues and sort of agenda that we have on this show in general. So we're very like-minded in terms of how we think about a sport like football. But also because in a kind of um, biographical or autoethnographic sense, Zach's own life and experiences intersect with this topic. Um, and so what we're trying to do in this episode, which is going to, I think, be a little bit different than what we normally do, is we want to explore Zach's insights and critiques of sport, but we're also interested in exploring, in this sort of ethnographic way, how the profound harm of high-level tackle football has actually shaped and informed Zach's own life. And to explain what I mean by that, I just want to start by saying, or asking, Zach, can you share with us a bit about the story of your father, Steve Furness, who was a defensive lineman on the famous Steel Curtain of the Pittsburgh Steelers in the 1970s? Um, and we, I guess what we want to do here is just sort of unpack what you can tell us about his career in football, the harm he experienced, and how that ultimately came to shape his life and the life of your family. Sure. So my dad played uh as you as you noted in the the introduction, and I really appreciate the the nice intro. Um, my dad played pro football for um, I believe it was ten full seasons. Um, he played um, nine of those with the Steelers and an additional year with the Detroit Lions. Um, he was traded at the end of his career to Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Uh, was very unhappy about that and was quickly traded to the Lions and got into coaching very early and got out of football before he faced a lot of the immediate uh, debilitating injuries that most players of his generation, especially linemen, faced as far as, you know, being able to, lack of mobility, being able to play, especially at a pro level, etc. He had a desire to get into coaching pretty early as well and wanted to do radio broadcasting. Um, I actually have a copy of his, an FCC card of his that I found of, of him getting licensed to be on the air at some point at the end of his career. Um, but he spent, I mean, the majority of my life was seeing him as a coach. So uh, I grew up in around East Lansing, Michigan, where he coached for Michigan State. Um, and he worked for uh, and got brought to the job by uh, George Perlis, who was his football coach. He was the defensive line coach at the Steelers. So that was his coach when he was a pro player. And then they coached together um, on that college team until my dad took a job with the Colts um, in... 92, I believe it was. Uh, they were promptly fired the whole staff um, on Christmas Eve, by the way. Jim Irsay, real good guy for doing that. Wow. Yikes. Yeah. Wow. I, they were, uh, the team was 1 in 15. Um, so they fired everybody. And then uh, we moved to Pittsburgh, where my dad was back with the Steelers for a couple of years as a defensive line coach. Uh, the team did 
very well. Um, the, def- the defense was number one in the NFL, despite that uh, my dad got canned. I think he had some personal issues with, uh, I think him and Bill Cower kind of butted heads. I think Cower had a little bit of jealousy, I think, about uh, the kind of attention that my dad would get. They kind of looked similar, too. I think it was some weird, like, dude stuff with that. Um, <laughs> kind of hard to say, but I know that, um, you know, his last year's coaching were preceded his death by about five years or so. Um, give or take, um, as far as him getting out of coaching, he died very early, died of a heart attack at 49. Um, wow. and that was a long time ago at this point, like he's actually been gone longer than I had him here, which is a weird point in your life when that happens. Mm. Um, but his, so when I think about all the kind of ways that football shaped the way that I think about, I mean, pretty much everything to be honest, but you know, growing up in a, in a household where your everyday experience isn't just like, we like games, but you're actually, you know, in the mix with players and coaches and, you know, every one of our family trips, uh, every wintertime, Christmas time, despite the fact that I'm, you know, I'm Jewish, like the holidays would be uh, a bowl game trip with other coaches and their families. And um, that was just like how we lived, right? You know, just were surrounded by football, football sort of unquestioned. Um, and with it, a lot of the assumptions about how people play, why they play, what the consequences of that are. Um, so especially when thinking about like how young he died, uh, the kinds of things that really got brought into focus for me about the way players experience injury and pain and how that's tied to real explicit and implicit notions about what it means to be a guy, especially just like a tough guy um, and somebody who's a player and somebody who um, is able to compete at a really high level in the way that those ideas, I think, also get exported in a lot of ways, not just from being a, a man playing sports, but just the kind of ethic of, of playing sports and playing with pain and what that means, that that sort of becomes a more universalized idea about what it means to compete at a high level. We can certainly talk about that. Um, well, actually, yeah, no, let's, let's follow up on yeah. that for a moment. Cause obviously there's, there's so many threads here, but um, I'm curious, like, so obviously, it, you know, if your father is immersed in this world of football, it's his occupational identity. And in, in order, at least this is the prevailing idea, right? The, yeah. In order to train the young people under his authority to be, to, to sort of instrumentalize their bodies in the most effective way, masculinity was understood and is understood to be an instrument of that, right? Like we, the more you can embody a kind of hegemonic or hyper-masculinity, the more successful you're going to be in dominating another person on the football field, right? I mean, I think that that's the prevailing ethos, whether or not, you know, it's sometimes challenged by people that run against the grain. Um, so I'm imagining that that's kind of like when he's at work, right? Mm-hmm. That's what he's immersed in, and and also the he's a pedagogue of. How does that um, leak into your life as a family and as like a, a a boy growing up in like an environment where he's your father, but he's also this coach figure? Like you're talking about how these things are circulating. Yeah, but I'm curious if we can just dig a bit deeper on like does he? Because we talk about how um, you know in the sociology of sport we talk about how the athletes can't switch it off, right? Like if you're trained to right, be right. hyper-masculine on the field and aggressive, you can't switch that off when you exit that kind of field space. How about as a coach? You know, is he able as a teacher, as a father to switch that off? So here's the the interesting, me and my brother have talked about this a lot because, you know, we've had 
I mean, unfortunately, in this way, we've had a lot of years to reflect um, on it. And just, you know, both of us have always had the pretty strange relationship of having a dad who is so well known. Um, it's not, I mean, a lot of people's parents might be well known for a certain thing and celebrities, et cetera. But there's something in particular about being, um, you know, the son of somebody who was so part of teams that were so revered as far as the, like the identity of the city they were in at the time in Pittsburgh. Um, and just the kind of way that, you know, especially my brother who works uh, out, out in Las Vegas in the restaurant industry and, you know, he'd run into players, ex-players every now and again, or run into people who knew my dad. And so the the interesting thing about what you brought up is that on the one hand, my dad was the epitome of like tough guy. I mean, just by how he was. I mean, he was incredibly, incredibly strong, very aggressive um, as far as the way that he played on the field, looked tough. I mean, he looked, you know, he looked like a uh, if you cross like a, a bodybuilder and Magnum PI in like the early 1980s, which was like about as <laughs> as, as hard ass as you could be, uh, so in one sense he embodied all those things. He played extremely physical. He taught his players to be physical. But when it came to coaching, he was a really good coach, and I got to watch him coach. Obviously, not like you know the ins and outs of you if you observe somebody you know secretly. But I saw him coach enough and saw his demeanor with players and even with other coaches to know that his approach to to coaching was very was much more like a teacher in the classroom and was also uh, it was that combined with a real sense of like professionalism. So it wasn't that I think my dad didn't convey ideas about like, you know, you need to be like a tough guy kind of thing. That stuff's just implicit in the way that the, the game is, especially when you're talking about linemen. I'm playing with injury, uh, you know, trying to, you know, not quarterbacks out of the game, not like hurt people, but just, you know, get, get them off the field, have them sit out a few downs. Cause you know, those kinds of things are just like part of how people play, but it's like the way that he actually conveyed that to other players. I think he did have a real sense of responsibility in the way that he approached what you say to young men and the kind of impact you can have on, on their lives in a really positive way. And so that's one of the things that's always been kind of in tension with my increasingly like anti football views over the years is that there is this whole other dimension to athletics and education and, and pedagogy and all of this stuff that is, I also saw for years and years, which was the kind of way that you can have a, a really powerful uh, impact on how people live their lives and the kind of people that they are and um, the kind of stuff that gets put on their radar as far as like what actually matters. And to him, that was always making sure that players did well in school, not just for the sake of being able to make the team, which I think is usually unfortunately is usually the bottom line. I mean, of course, Def that's like, definitely, yes. you know, that's usually the main thrust, right? Like don't get booted off. Don't get booted out of school or be on probation. Your scholarship will get messed up. Um, but he wanted players to do well. I mean, I used to go with him to the, the football buildings on Saturdays when I was a kid and like, I'd go, you know, wander around the weight room and he'd go run laps. And sometimes there'd be players in there and he'd just have like, there'd be some just like big giant dude running around and be like, coach, when can I stop running? It'd be like, when you throw up, you know, and just like, oh, you know, because he because he missed classes all week or something. My dad was just like not having it. <laughs> um, so, you know, he'd, he'd be he'd have some guy in there like running, running extra on Saturday just to be like, 
you know, you got to go to class. You got to meet with your, you know, you got to meet with people that are trying to help you succeed. Um, so there's this whole dimension about his teaching where, and I think his, his kind of character as a person where he sort of didn't have to perform tough guy because he just was. Uh, and so a lot of the like extra jockeying and I don't know, real just super bullshitty parts of masculinity that I think you see on display with the kind of alpha male coaches and players and stuff. He didn't have to put that on because he was a giant dude that walked around with Super Bowl ring on his hand. You know what I mean? It's like you don't have to. Yeah. To, to him, it's like, what am I going to? Am I going to try to show up this guy who's like a, a loudmouth high school football coach? You know, he's like, I, <laughs> you know, I played for the Steelers in the 70s. Like, what did you do? Is that, I think that I think that kind of attitude was implicit in him, and I think um, not in a way where I think he was real cocky about it, but I think he, it was it it definitely gave a more nuanced perspective to me about the different kinds of ways that people embody and sort of convey ideas about masculinity and stuff. And I think that you know when it came to players, um, you know he definitely taught people to be as physical as I think he thought the game required, which was that part of that means you play injured, you have to, you know, you take care of your body first and foremost, because it's, you know, you're, you're in trouble if you don't, but it also means that, you know, unless something's, unless something's seriously injured and you kind of know it on the spot, like you, you know, you need to play through that. You need to play and, and learn how to be tough and learn how to take hits and learn how to, to dish it out and to learn how to take criticism as well. Um, and so the kinds of things that I saw in hindsight, because, you know, I wasn't old enough to watch him play pro football, but the kinds of things that I know he spent his life doing as a player and having in his head about, um, you know, an even more heightened version of that as far as playing when you're injured and, and playing through pain, which in the 1970s was really in the, in the NFL was more of an extension of the 60s, which was essentially if you don't play, we'll find someone else that'll do it. You know, mm -hmm. so you're yep. like severe labor issues also as, as far as you know, if you don't want to play with a broken foot, like, fine, we'll fire you. Like, we'll get some, we'll get somebody else in here Monday. Like, we don't care. It's a warm body. Um, and that started to shift in his generation. But I think that mentality was very much the same. Um, and I think that he certainly um, knew that there were much different stakes in the way that he coached. But just generally, I mean, the whole environment was something where it's always bravado. It's always being a tough guy. Um, but again, for me, it was always this, this contradictory mix of, of that plus people who were very sensitive to the world around them and people who are really intelligent and folks that you wouldn't think were, you know, your typical jock types. Um, I, I actually didn't really, I didn't understand the kind of jock stereotype until I was a bit older because... I don't think that some of the people that I was around particularly as like coaches and their families fit into that in a way that made immediate sense to me. You know what I mean? It's almost like I had to like yeah. learn, learn what that was and why that irritated people so much um, as I got a little older. And then of course, as I started playing and, you know, became was in high school later on, that certainly became a lot more clear to me. So, yeah, I actually have a follow up there, like when you were um, talking about kind of like your childhood and yeah. um, kind of moving around, obviously. And, and I guess I was wondering, at what point do you think you kind of became conscious of the fact that like your life was like revolving around football? And, and alternatively, at what point did you start reflecting kind of more critically on some of these experiences? Like, was it 
because I can sort of imagine growing up in that and that and that and that environment. And I think about my experiences as an athlete, like it wasn't for me until much later, it was just all natural. Like that is what I knew. And so I imagine it was probably the same for you. So yeah, kind of two questions here. At what point did you become conscious that like, um, this was the world that you were in and that at what point did you start uh, reflecting more critically, because clearly this is like a huge part of who you are. You said it shapes your worldview and kind of your identity. So I'd love to hear a little bit more about both. As far as when I'd say probably around the time where people would like kids in school would, you know, say like, I saw your dad on TV or something. Cause he'd have like a, you know, quick little interview on mm-hmm. you know the news broadcast that came after like a, a, a game or something like that. Um, you know, so probably like as a, you know, eight, nine, 10 around there. And then like really became more cognizant about, I think, uh, as I got old enough to start really understanding like what the, what a Super Bowl meant and what the kind of identity of the Steelers meant in our, in Pittsburgh in the seventies, which I really didn't grasp until I was moved back here as an adult. Um, even, even more so than when we moved back, uh, to the area when I was in high school and he started coaching for the Steelers, um, so, I mean, I, I had a pretty good awareness a lot of the time about his involvement and, and what sorts of things were entailed in that. But I think that I didn't really start to, I think I said really didn't start to question the ideas as much about that are kind of implied in the way that people move and inhabit worlds as athletes and coaches, especially when it comes to real hyper-masculine kind of sports like football. Um I'd say the earliest I started thinking about it was around those same ages, like probably before I was a teen, but it it would always come with really explicit things like injuries. You know, you see somebody Mm -hmm. get like, get their knee blown out like badly, like the kind of stuff that they don't show on TV, but you see it because you're like holding your dad's headphone cord on the sidelines, you know, but they like cut away to commercial and you just see some guy get buckled by three people. And you know, you know that he might have trouble walking for the rest of his life, let alone his football career is done instantly, like college gone, pro possibilities gone. Um, and the kind of like, not nonchalance that people would talk about that because that stuff was always taken very seriously. But um, the kind of way that I think it became normalized to talk about injuries is like, well, he's out with a knee or he's out with an ankle. It's always like the something. It's like this indefinite, you know, an, an ankle, he had a wrist, you know, like just talking mm-hmm. about injuries in this kind of way where, um, they just get cataloged and and it's just part of the game. And it's like that for all sports, but football is just that kind of way where you know, you know, that it's probably a lot worse than just, it's not like a, you got an ankle twist or like, you know, I hurt his elbow. It's probably like, you know, he, he requires surgery and has 18 pins in his arm or something like that, you know? And so thinking about the kind of ways that, you know, you'd see people get hurt or hear about people getting hurt that were really serious started to make me think more about it. Um, and then I think especially when I played in high school, uh, I had a little bit of, of injury going into it with a couple of things, but then, you know, I hurt my ankle pretty bad one year and then it hurt the whole season, um, hurt my shoulder at the end of playing football that then made it impossible for me to throw discus well that spring, which I really, really enjoyed mm-hmm. doing and, and still miss oddly enough, like almost 30 years later, mm-hmm. um, so then I really started, you know, it was like as I was a teenager that I was really just like, this is pretty crazy. you know, like, And realizing that my dad was incredibly lucky to not have visible injuries. I'm about 95% sure, as is my brother, that he had CTE and probably a pretty advanced case of it. 
Mm. Um, not advanced in the way that um, his teammate Mike Webster did, but you know it's morbid. But we've both said that if there is if there is one good thing that came from the fact that he died so young is that we didn't have to watch him turn into that. Um, because yeah. I've seen enough of the footage. I haven't talked with with Mike's with Mike's kids, but you know, just from the the piece that I wrote about, uh, you know the the documentary about the the NFL and League of Denial and the book, and um, you know, seeing the extra clips and stuff with him, and hearing stories from my dad and my brother about when Mike would occasionally come and, and crash on my dad's couch. Uh, you know, I, we didn't. I'm I'm lucky I got spared that. Um, but that came. Not that not much long after, as far as his death. So I mean, I was in grad school um, in '99, but when I was in high school, and you know, I got myself hurt, and I was just it really put into focus all of these conversations over the years, and all of these players that I watched, and um, and also just you know, here I remember you know the the steroid scandal with uh, Tony Mandarich was something that I remember thinking about a lot because I was really into weightlifting. My dad was really into weightlifting. Um, but you know, I was just like always told to me, like, you know, I didn't even have the option to like try to, I wouldn't even know where to go to buy steroids when I was in high school. But the, uh, I, you know, I knew what that world was also that people, you know, pumped stuff into them and took crazy pills and acted, you know, incredibly insane as a result of it. Um, you know, my dad would share stories every now and again from, you know, things that were sometimes kind of humorous, but it was also just like, oh my God, as far as realizing like how people behave when they're on, you know, huge amounts of steroids and don't cycle off of them and double up in the amounts that they take. And, um, you know, what that does to your body and what it does to your face and the kind of acne you get and the way you behave and, uh, you know, all that kind of stuff. So I don't think you can really put all the, all that combination of things into perspective until maybe you're a little bit older, or at least in my case, I think I was like Johanna said, I was so immersed in, Mm-hmm. athletics of different kinds. Like I played tennis. I, you know, I did track, I, I wrestled, I played hockey for a year. I played football for, you know, my dad wouldn't let me play until I was older because of, of injury. Oh, wow. Wow. Um, but all that, you know, you can, I don't think you can really put all that stuff into perspective. I think until you're a tad bit older. Yeah. Well, there's a couple of things there. So it's really interesting that actually you mentioned, maybe we can come back to this. Um, the fact that your dad didn't let you play football, um, that's that's really striking, particularly yeah. given that era and how much was known, right? And that, and that gets to the thing I was going to ask you before you mentioned that, which was just to explore further around, you know, the question you said about Mike Webster, your dad, and and obviously this is that's sort of like the case in which CTE enters the popular imagination. That's what you're describing through League of Denial and so forth yeah. and the way in which that book and the, the film and and then later the film Concussion, right, have really shaped a lot of our popular discussion about what head injury means in football and other sports. But you're talking about knowing your dad, and being with your dad, and even like, you know, after the retroactively sort of diagnosing your dad yeah. before, before this was the popular conversation, right? Yeah. So I'm kind of curious about how you felt that manifested in your lives growing up with him. Like as you reread it back, right? Through, through sure. that understanding, through that history, how you kind of come to unpack that now. How did CTE head trauma affect his life and your life? I think in, so the, the, the weird part about, the diagnosing it either retroactively, if you you know, 
real scientists, both in the real sense and in the quote unquote sense of, of sports experts that would like to think of themselves in, in that kind of way. I think in both senses of looking back and, and trying to recognize symptoms of that stuff. Ironically, when it comes to many of the types of people who are more prone to get those injuries, i.e. folks that are highly competitive, very macho, physically tough, as well as embodying ideas about toughness and kind of carrying around that sort of alpha dude personality. Um, some of the things that are pretty common to happen with them as they exit, especially professional football at that level, are things like being a little bit depressed, maybe being a little bit withdrawn, having issues with uh, with drinking or other substances. All of those things are ones that are also very similar um, and and pretty matter of fact for people that have CTE because of the the biological ways that it impacts your brain matter as well as the kinds of things that people do in order to to self-medicate whether it's to calm some awareness of that they have that their bodies are changing in ways that they can't control or perhaps in ways just to you know as like with Mike Webster uh, taking a you know, apparently at various times, uh, you know, enormous amounts of, of Adderall and things like that, not to feel high, but just to, to, to function and try to keep his thoughts straight. Um, so that combination of things is, is difficult to sort out. My dad was definitely somebody who I used to describe his personality as like, I, like he'd be very, very social and cordial with, with, you know, coaches and, and families and, you know, our family and, and stuff. But when it came to like his personal everyday in and out life, he was sort of like Kevin Arnold's dad. He's sort of, and you know, in the wonder years, he kind of had this very like, kind of like gruff demeanor. Um, always a little bit of a furrowed eyebrow, which unfortunately I inherited. People are like, why are you so pissed? I'm like, I'm not pissed. It's just, just my face. <laughs> um, so there's part of that where it's really difficult to tease out what parts of him were you know, a little bit angry and, and by his nature of his personality. And he definitely drank too much, um, especially later in his life. Uh, and I, you know, it's, it's hard to know what parts of that were him having, you know, brain disease from, from getting his head banged around and which parts of it were just from being like, uh, you know, an ex jock who still missed the spotlight in certain kinds of ways, you know? And I think that it was yeah. a healthy mix of both. And I'm positive that some of the adverse personality stuff we saw with him, as far as I think his demeanor and the ways that he carried himself at various times. And, and certainly some instances where I remember some real oddities with memory and, and him and a couple of stories that my brother shared with me years later where, you know, just not remembering certain things that were, that had just happened. Um, and minor, minor kind of stuff, the kinds of things that are more easy, more easily able to write off, you know, of just like, Oh, I forgot the directions to somewhere, that kind of thing. Um, but when you look at the kind of composite, you know, mosaic version of, of how his life ended up and especially, I mean, no matter how you want to slice and dice it, I mean, the guy died at 49, like, mm -hmm. and had a stress test done six months prior, you know, in a hospital, which I didn't realize also until a few years ago. So he was the kind of guy that wouldn't go to the hospital, really, unless you were, like, bleeding very badly. Uh, but he also, you know, he got his body severely abused, and I'm I'm certain that the impacts on his brain were ones that he 
couldn't have understood. There was nothing about it at the time. I imagine that there are lots of other players of his generation that both dealt with it in certain kinds of ways or parts of that manifested in aspects of their behavior where I don't think it's just a simple, it's not a simple cause and effect, right? It's not, I hurt my brain, ergo, whatever the most awful examples we've all heard from CTER, you know, completely losing mm-hmm. your mind and, and, you know, shooting yourself through the heart. So the NFL getting examine your head being the most extreme I can think of, right? Which is just like shocking to even say, let alone have to deal with that as a reality with your family or loved one or, or your hero growing up or anything, you know, people like Junior Seau and um, a couple others. Uh, but, you know, it's so not everything is that level, but I think that the more I read about CTE and especially the more that you'd start to see these real old gruff hard asses from the 60s and 70s actually open up a little bit about what their life's like on the day-to-day, where you started to see much more of the kind of behavioral and cultural sorts of stuff that I don't think the medical end of studies around CTE necessarily understand in quite the same way, in part because it's not what they do, right? They're trying to understand... uh, They're trying to understand symptoms and, and causes and problems in ways that they can diagnose, it's much harder to talk about things that are complex, like culture, right? And just say, well, these people acted a certain way because of this injury. That's very difficult to, uh, to discuss in that way. I mean, you know, one of my favorite scholars, Raymond Williams, is very famous for saying that, you know, culture is one of the most difficult two or three words in the English language. Um, and, you know, had an, an enormous amount to say about that throughout his career and influenced the whole field of study that, that got me in, interested in, in theory and communications, et cetera. But the point being, you can't replicate that stuff in a, in a lab. You can't just say, well, these people acted this way because of this type of injury or this level of injury. It's far more complicated, and so it makes it more difficult to know what the behavioral and communicative and social and kind of psychic ideas uh, you know, as far as like in the way that you behave and the way that you think, um, how those interact with with getting severe head trauma. Um, but you know, as somebody who lived with a person that I know had it, I'm positive that it either exacerbated or was the cause of of you know a number of different things about his personality that I wish were different when I was growing up. Um, but I think especially as he got closer to the years that he before he died, where I think that became a little bit more prominent and a little more visible. I just happened to be, I was away at college for most of those years. So I also didn't see a lot of that in person. It was more stories that I'd hear from my brother after the fact. And again, not to the point where he really became a different person, so to speak, but there's certainly parts of his personality that I think you couldn't just look at and be like, well, he's changed a little. Like there was certainly, I think there were things going on that, to be honest, probably scared the shit out of him and, and, didn't really know how to deal with that. And I imagine that's the case for lots of people that have those sorts of injuries. So, I mean, I have more comments than questions. I'm not like annoying sure. a scholar that's, at, that's, the, at the conference. That's um, but, you know, it's like someone who like has little awareness of football and kind of has never really watched it or kind of been, it was never part of like my childhood growing up. Yep. Like I'm listening to this and like, I'm thinking of kind of like the violence 
mm. obviously, which is a huge part of the game. But yeah. just like being enmeshed in that as like a child, I'm just thinking like, wow, like what an impact that might have had. And then, you know, I guess a question to this last point that you made is like, yeah, I guess I'm curious about his sort of awareness of kind of what was going on. And you just said that like you were in college and kind of the last few years or whatever. Yeah. And, you know, CTE, I don't even know. This is my ignorance. I don't even actually know when like CTE was first kind of um, developed as like a diagnosis. But yeah, like to what extent do you think he was actually aware of kind of like my body is I don't want to say crumbling, but, you know, my body is like feeling these impacts of years and years and years of these hits and like, I don't know what's going on. I don't know what to do about it. Like, to what extent do you know anything about that process for him? Probably very little because the mm-hmm. things that everybody would talk about as far as what happens to you as a result of the game were all observable physical mm-hmm. problems, right? Having, mm-hmm. And if people of his generation, I mean, he's one of the only people I know of or even read about that like never had a knee surgery, never had a mm-hmm. shoulder surgery, never had an elbow surgery, like broke a bunch of fingers, which of course is going to happen. Mm-hmm. Had a sore back that I would see him occasionally have heat on less, less so than me now. Um, <laughs> and you know, he'd run f- five miles a day at lunchtime usually or in the morning. Wow. wow. Um, so he didn't really have a lot of the stuff that, that was, extraordinarily common, especially for linemen who are lucky to even move around in their thirties and forties, let alone be jogging every day. Um, so I don't know that he had a a real awareness of that other than, you know, just being attuned to everyday sorts of things about what he thought he needed to do in order to stay in shape. And of course, like, you know, you know, sitting down and drinking 10 Bud Lights while you're watching television is probably not the, the greatest way to approach that, but mm-hmm. also something that was pretty common with him, you know? And so I think that when you're at that sort of level, the kinds of, the kind of a consciousness you have about injuries, I think is very heavily informed by your immediate experience. Cause like who, you know, it's be like most doctors aren't even aware of what football is really like unless you're around it. So your knowledge of what really matters, I think, as far as injury and what to be aware of comes from your experience as a player, other players' experiences, and what your coaches have told you. And that kind of knowledge that gets cultivated, I think, internally in the game becomes a a really important place for people to, to understand, like, what's happening to them, what they need to be aware of, what's serious, what's not, what's the kind of stuff that people will tell you is serious, but it's not really like that kind of thing, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, but I mean, the CTE stuff didn't come around for a few more years and my dad died in, uh, right at the beginning of 2000, Mike Webster died, I believe a year later. Um, and he was the first person that it was discovered in because, uh, Amalu, the, uh, guy who was working uh, for the coroner's office decided kind of on a whim to, um, to look at his brain because his, his, of the way that his body looked and, you know, was shocked to find that his body looked to be, I, I forget exactly how he described it, but it was essentially that he was looking at the brain of somebody who he would have assumed had he been shown in a different context to be in his eighties and had some sort of degenerative mental wow. condition. Wow. Um, and wow. so even for his fight to get that recognized and for other people to be aware of it, it wasn't until years later, I mean, decades really that, the conversation around head injury started to happen in the kind of way where I think it became normalized in the way that it is now where concussion protocols are part of the game in a very different sort of way than they used to be. I don't know that that's 
yeah, I can we can talk about that a little later about the way that I think that that stuff has become. I don't know. It's almost like a preventative band aid. It's like it's taken seriously now. Concussions are thought of as a big deal, but I think because they have this protocol in place, it makes it so that um, it kind of gives the illusion that it's safer, and it's not. Mm-hmm. It's like <laughs> nothing's changed. I mean, it's like still people running around and smashing their faces into each other, and um, you know, and sickos like me that grew up liking that because it's just like mm-hmm. ah, big hits, you know. Um, and it's you know, it's hard to get that out of your head, even when I talk about this stuff or I wrote about this and thought intensely about these things when I was uh, reading League of Denial and had a little bit of correspondence with with one of the authors, at least just exchanging a couple of quick notes, you know, via Twitter and talking to a lot of ex-players and talking to my brother. And despite all of this, I'll still watch games and, and be like, ooh, that was a good hit. And, you know, and immediately I'm like, I know what that means, right? And yeah. I know what it yeah. means for people to take 50 of these, let alone like 500 of these. But there's still part of me that's like, likes to see that kind of violence of the game. And that's what I think is so problematic about talking about like, about like football jock culture is it's not that everybody who watches that stuff becomes like, or plays it becomes the epitome of, of, you know, the, the mean jock and the, the most stereotypical eighties movie where he's just like pushing around people and calling them nerds and like, you know, being a jerk to everybody. It's more the kind of everyday mundane love of seeing people mm. smash each other yeah, and just having that be something that is like, that's entertainment. <laughs> like that's right, good entertainment, right. you know, like that's exciting. Um, yeah. even for people who can bracket and put that stuff in a, in a different place where, you don't have to necessarily think about the immediate impacts of it. Um, and that's the kind of stuff that I think is freaky. And that's why I thought, you know, coming back to, to what Nathan asked me about as far as like CTE and, you know, when I started thinking about the kind of, I could have written a lot more and had thought for a long time about working on a much larger project about the representation of, of toughness and masculinity and, and injury, especially in pro football and, Partly as a function of like, I was trying to do too many things at the time and, uh, you know, I'm kind of scatterbrained as it is. So trying to stay on task with certain things for various periods of time is can be <laughs> difficult, especially long-term mm-hmm. projects. And there's a lot of scholars that I ran into. I was like, oh, people are already doing really great work around this. So I didn't feel a need mm-hmm. to like try to write something about it the way I did when I, when I wrote my, my book. And, um, but I think that I, in, I thought a lot about all of the ways that these things play together as far as representations and how they affect what I think broadly speaking, you could think of as ideological norms, right? Ways that we behave, kind of dominant perspectives that we hold, what our common sense is about our cultures and who we are as people, how our bodies look, how we, you know, how how everything about what constitutes common sense, right? That's what I put under the umbrella of ideology. And I think that uh, when you look at the kinds of ways that we get normalized to seeing injury and to seeing physical combat in sports, uh, it's hard to get perspective about that as an American because I think it only comes from conversations with people that don't grow up here that you really start to get a much more informed sense, either from conversations or their research or you know, first-person things that they write about what it really means to watch football with a fresh set of eyes and seeing that kind of 
violence for yourself and thinking about it as violence as opposed to just like having to almost teach yourself to think in terms of it being violent in the way that I have, right? Where that kind of language would never even be used. Or if it was, maybe maybe in a good way, but <laughs> certainly not in a critical way, right? Where you think about what you are watching as like as violence and as people hurting each other. Um, yeah, it's a sport, but it's like first and foremost, it's it's very physical. And at the end of the day, you know, whoever wins or who lo- loses, that matters in a certain sense, uh, in a very narrow sense, but everybody's getting hurt, right? Like, and not all sports are like that. And I think that uh, that's part of what it becomes difficult about being a football fan and growing up around football is you internalize that and normalize it in a way where uh, it's not as if everybody feels the need to apologize for it. Lots of people don't, especially right now. Like we live in a terrible time right now as far as real ridiculously stupid arcane ideas about masculinity coming to the forefront Mm -hmm. again. But I think that, you know, you have a lot of it where people internalize it in a way where it just doesn't become part of their conversation because either the words used around it or thinking about it as, as violence is something that is, it's, it's uncomfortably with people. Right. And that's part of the reason why I think it's useful for folks to reframe it in that way. Um, at times, I think that it can also go overboard and that can have some rebound effects that are, are not the greatest. So what I mean by that is I, I spent a lot of years trying to think about how, if I were to coach, right. Or if I had a kid and they were to play football and I, and I have a young boy now, um, if I was to do any of these things, like how would I even do that? Like, is there a way that I could do that and try to recognize that people are going to play this whether I want them to or not. So maybe I could be a force for good kind of thing. You know, like the, the real sincere guy that wants to go make a, make a difference in city hall or something like that. I don't know. Um, some insider perspective as opposed to just like critique. Um, and I think critique is incredibly important and very necessary. But as far as like, could I get involved with that in some sort of way that would be ethical to me? And and I don't, I don't think I can, you know, it's uh, I don't want my kid to play football. Um, I'm prepared for the fact that I'll probably have an enormously big son. He's a toddler with like gigantic feet and, you know, he has a professional, you know, football player as a grandfather and then two uncles on his mom's side, both on her dad and her mom's side. One was a pro catcher and one a pro pitcher. Um, so, you know, the kid's probably going to be like enormous and a super athlete. And like, I'm going to have to have a lot of conversations with him over the years about trying to direct if he does want to play sports into some place that's more productive and less harmful than, than football and, and hope that he listens to me. Um, but I think that, you know, it be, it's, it's hard for people in any kind of register to be critical about some of the stuff that they like to do because the only emotions that come with a lot of that are uh, guilt and then getting angry at people that talk to them about Mm -hmm. stuff critically because they think that they're supposed to feel guilty. So then they're pissed Mm -hmm. at everybody else for telling them that they're bad for doing something. Um, And so there's ways that I think taking the approach of being really anti-football is important and necessary. I'm extremely grateful to the work that like some of y'all done in particular, as well as some other writers and other people that I know that 
I've tried to, you know, tackle, no pun intended, these issues over the years. Dave Zirin being a, you know, writer who I've loved for years, as well as a whole bunch of great scholars. Um, Tom Oates, who I did a a book with and, you know, did more of the legwork with me than I did on that project. Um, And so, you know, I think that there's a lot of places where I think it's really important to try to push and create and develop a sustained critique of, of football that's systematic and also one that is really focused on specific kinds of issues that, that will resonate with people and try to raise awareness. Um, I don't know that lots of people that are playing the game or are interested in the game in that way are going to listen to that. And you can't, <laughs> that's not a reason to like write off why you study things or why you want to engage the public with certain questions. That's a, a, a stupid barometer to judge things by like, Will people who are already fans of this not like we have to say? It's a terrible way to measure why you should engage in research or do projects or have a voice and get angry and fired up about things. But I'm trying to figure out a way to what's going to potentially work to try to like really swing the opinions of people who are athletes. And that's a much more difficult thing. And I'm yeah. I'm actually curious. That's one of the things I wanted to ask you guys about since all the conversations you've had over the years with people. We could we could have that later if you want, but you know, I've I've spent a lot of years thinking about that and I feel like I'm I'm kind of old enough at the point now where my age alone is is a is a difficult hindrance of like talking to people who are in their late teens, early twenties anyway. Um, you know, it's like, Hey, you ever think about this? It's like, I just, you know, I feel like the, the grandpa on the Simpsons, like just yelling, <laughs> yeah. at the, yelling at the clouds or something. It's like, Oh, okay. Grandpa. Yeah, sure, 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 sure. Um, no, it's, tr- it's a great, know? no, it's a great point, Zach, but, you know, really, because, <clears throat> you know, I mean, D- Derek and I have this book project, uh, which is called the end of college football. Uh, <laughs> and so, you know, the, uh, the vanishing point there is this question around abolition and you're also, yeah. you're, you're, you're what's this project trying to accomplish, right? Who is it for? And we've talked to football players, right? I mean, the the foundation of the project, the the substance of the project is actually, you know, the 24 plus folks that we spoke to, what their experiences were, and it's told through their experiences. Um, And yet, if, as you point out, if we gave that book to most people who are Mm. playing, let's say, college football right now, um, they probably aren't going to, come to that book with the same um, outlook on football as the book takes, right? There's sure. a way in which for so many of them, and this, and this, I mean, not to go too down, too far down the road of that project, but I think it's exactly what you are talking about, what you've raised here, the challenge to untangle all of these different threads, right? Which are, which come together. And some yeah. of them have to do with pleasure, right? That's part of what you're getting at. Like yep. for some people, in some ways, there is actually pleasure in tackle football. And we yeah. have to acknowledge that. And then, right, what gets messy is that that gets mixed up with, one, the thing that I'm most disturbed by, the structural coercion, right? sure. which is to say, you know, who needs to play football in order to leverage their life chances in a meaningful way so they have access to higher education and class mobility and all sorts of forms of opportunity that are denied in racial capitalism. Yep. And if that's ever, you know, a thumb on the scale, that's deeply disturbing, right? Because no one should be compelled to, to subject themselves to this kind of violence so that they have opportunity like that, right? And that's, so that's like really pushing down the, the, the scale towards abolition. And I think, uh, it's, and then yeah, I think it's the, yeah, go on, go on. one of the things that I think needs to be raised the most, you know, so 
continue. Yeah. And then, and then the additional thing, which you're getting at, is the ideological side of it, right? The, and and like, we could even call that a kind of ideological coercion, which is that if you were, and, and, and I was stunned by this as a you know, Canadian who yeah. was living in Durham, North Carolina. And so, uh, you know, in, I would say that North Carolina is not like the true heart and soul of football country, but it's certainly at least adjacent. And I mean, to see the signs, right, for Pop Warner football to enroll your kid at five years old, Ridiculous. right, in football. And I mean, one, that's, I, I genuinely feel that's full-on child abuse to, to subject actual children of that age to, to the harm of actual tackle football. But separate from that, if you are five years old and you're enrolled in this activity and the authority figures in your life are telling you that this is one of the preeminent forms of culture, right? And yeah. they're, they're, they're valuing and fetishizing football as a cultural pursuit. And you see making the NFL as about the, the greatest realization of human possibility. At what point did you choose to love football, right? And at what 100%. point was that just, right? Yeah, that's the air you're breathing, um, and those are the things that are so hard. I think this is nothing different from what you're saying to disentangle from the pleasures that people get, right? Because we're also taught to get those pleasures. And so one of the things I learned, which I think was also echoed in the things that you've been telling us, I learned through those interviews was some people like for all sorts of different complex reasons, I'm not making any kind of essentialist argument here necessarily, but yeah. like people are wired differently. And for some people, there is pleasure in dealing and even experiencing kinds of pain and violence. Um, that's not a universal truth about human beings, but right. I think that for some people, there's more of a kind of tendency in that direction. And some of the players we talked to, this was so striking to me because they were really self-reflective individuals, would sort of say like, you use this language. And so I'm, I'm not trying to say this as disparagement. I'm just trying to sort of like echo the language they use and even you use it. They're like, I'm a, they would say like, I'm a sicko. Like, I just like hurting people. <laughs> it's really fun. And like, so of course I love football. Right. And then by the same token, they'd be like, but you'd be crazy to enroll your kid in football because a yeah. sicko like me is going to try to kill them. Like, why would you ever want to put your child through that? That's a yeah. crazy thing to do is to let your kid play football with me. And this is you what know? this is what's yeah. particularly interesting about the the juxta juxtaposition I was highlighting and, and kind of contradictions of who my dad was and, and how he behaved, because as I noted before, like he, he was so accomplished and, and was such like a, a tough guy, uh, that he did, he didn't like, he looked at things like, you know, pop Warner football is just like, why would you, this is crazy. Like, who do you think you were like for okay. him? Football was this thing where if you want to do it and you want to take things seriously as a sport, like you do that, you work hard, you prepare yourself in ways that, you know, like any coach would tell you. Like, but it's also, he would, I, I heard him say probably more times than I ever have until I started engaging with other people like you all and other people that I would find through Twitter or other places online where, you know, there was this world of critical sports scholars that I started to become aware of when I was older. But outside of that, I'd say from my dad was one of the few places that I would hear pretty consistently him citing just how impossible it was for the average person to ever get into the NFL and, yes. and to do so in a way that explicitly highlighted how ridiculous it would be to live your life in a way where you thought that that was what you were going to do. Even if, and even, and especially if you were a, a star college player and, and it would just be like, you, you know, exactly. there's, there's no, this is not going to be your life. 
Like, so what are you, what are you going to do after this? You know, do you want to, and that's one of the reasons why I know he really wanted his, the guys on his team to, to get, to get their degrees and to, to be serious about the way that they approach that and to think about what they were doing after the game. Cause I know that when he played, he did, but I think he was, you know, he was very, despite coming from, you know, a working class background, he's a white guy that came from a working class background. He came from a different set of circumstances than like black players in the sixties who are like half his teammates came out of you know, black schools in the South that were basically still segregated, you know, right. like, um, a number of, of players came out of that and like, you know, in various parts of Texas and Florida. And, um, so, you know, his, the kind of structural things that he got to take advantage of or to think about as far as what he wanted to do with his life and the options that he thought he had and did have were very, very different than some of his contemporaries as players, um, as well as some of the really, you know, poor white players that he played with as well. I mean, most, most players back then weren't very wealthy in period. Um, exactly. Um, no. And that's part of the story, right? It yeah, really is. And I think that, so that generation's experience of those things as being part of like the fabric of their consciousness and the way that they understood the world did inform people, I think, to go in radically different directions. On the one is like, football is your ticket out of here. And the other is like, football will never be your ticket out of here. But you should, you know, we're going to approach it as this more like, as a sport and something, you know, you do professionally and take really seriously like my dad did. But, you know, he never talked to his players, I think, in the kind of way where it's become really commonplace in the way that you're describing, where you know, people are like looking at kids playing Pop Warner football and be like, oh, he's going to be a really good running back. It's like the kid's seven. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. yes. that, I've I, the best player that I think I ever saw on the field when I was in college, like who was my idol growing up was Percy Snow, who played linebacker for Michigan State when my dad coached there. Unbelievably good player. Dude messed up his ankle on a on a Honda scooter like the summer between him getting drafted in the first round and going to play for the oh, Kansas wow. City um Chiefs and his career was basically done from there. And so it was like those kind of moments too of realizing like just how precarious your body is, even for somebody who's incredibly athletic and so athletic that, I mean, even that guy's brothers were famous athletes in different sports later on. Um, but you know, you realize like how ridiculous it is to have, especially children playing, man. I mean, it's just like, and that's something that I'm really very lucky I got from my dad. The two things that yeah. people always expected, and, and I apologize if in, in some senses it sounds like I'm trying to, I think in some ways I have to defend and make more complex his perspectives about football because I've become so harsh in my criticism of them over the years mm -hmm. that I think it's important to remember the complicated places that people come from with this. But I think that both my experience of talking to people is very similar to, I think what you're describing from your book project, which is that when you talk to people who actually have high level careers doing the stuff, the people that did make it, they're some mm -hmm. of the first to tell you how absolutely madness it is that we do some right. of this stuff to ourselves and to other people because they don't have anything to prove. You know, and that's, that's, right. that's something that comes from also being like a giant dude who has four Super Bowl rings is like, you don't have to feel that, you know, like, what am I going to have my, my kid be a really good athlete? Like, what's he going to do that could possibly be a bigger achievement in sports than what I've already done? I think that was his kind of approach to, to athletics. So he didn't push me to do stuff the way that like his dad did, who used to, I remember him telling me stories of, you know, like making pitch baseballs before school and stuff. And, you know, and, and. I don't know that he was, you know, hard on him all the time in that way, but I think he felt a lot of pressure to perform 
And I didn't feel that. But I think that I was an outlier in that regard in comparison to people that I knew, even in other sports. You know, I had a friend who, whose dad would make him run laps around the soccer field if their team lost, like in front of people. Wow. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. And like stuff that I would oh, just, yes. I'd be like, are you serious? You know, like it's, that's, and to me, that was especially coming from the background I did. Like, that's just like, that. that's crazy. Like, why would you do that? You know, like that's just, that's really wild. Um, And I think, I mean, yeah, good. You know, no, I was just thinking about kind of what you were saying about presenting the nuance of your dad's experiences and like, what you were saying earlier, right, that if you kind of go into like, I don't know, a town hall or whatever, uh, you know, high school football meeting and like out of the gate be like, this is a terrible sport. Are you going to lose people? And I think that's the power of the nuance. And it's also like the reality of the complexity of the lived experience and why sports are so like cult like right like they yeah. like you're basically indoctrinated into this and it's really hard for people that are still enmeshed in that world and so believe in it wholeheartedly to see that there is a lot of nuance and so i think presenting the nuance is what makes it so key and i think even going back to like your question to us about like how how do we do this work and i think so much of this is audience is about the audiences that you're speaking to which is what both of you have mentioned right there's like the audience for your book nathan right and then there's the audience of like well i think I can, you know, work within the community because I understand the nuance. I grew up within that community. And I'm sure, Zach, you also have plenty of like connections and contacts, right? So you have access other people do not. And I'm thinking, you know, I don't only talk to football players, right? Like I talk to athletes of all kinds. And for me, it's sort of like, you know, I when they come into my office and they're, you know, stressed out about whatever's going on at practice or a meet or a game or whatever, like you start with like the, the, the details of what, what is concerning them. And then for me, I like, I point to like the structural issues, you know, like they're really exhausted and they feel like they can't keep up with anything and they're doing everything poorly. I'm like, I'm like, okay, let's talk about your schedule. Like how is your time being divided? And then what is it that is dividing your time? Who is making these decisions and how much freedom and agency do you feel like you have at a division three school to be like, you know what I I need, I need to skip practice because I have class. And like, technically at my school, they are supposedly empowered to say, I'm going to miss practice because I have to go to class, but because they're, they're so like indoctrinated in this environment for, for over a decade by that point that they feel really powerless to even, or they don't even think that there's a possibility to say no, because they desperately want to be with their friends and, you know, play at the game and, you know, whatever. Um, so anyway, sorry to like interject, but I, you know, I think so, so much of this is about like audience. And I think, how do you kind of scale and adapt kind of what it is you're saying to each and every audience? Because you're right. If like, I were to just send my students an episode with no context and just be like, listen to this, they'd be like, well, F off professor. You know, they would be like, they'd be like, you know, of course she wants to, you know, abolish football. So therefore I'm going to go even more hardcore into this. Um, So I think again, it's that nuance and how do you adjust that nuance to kind of talk to people at different levels and different kind of experiences and knowledge bases. I, I think you're absolutely right. And, and the stuff about what you're saying too, it's a, it's a, I mean, first of all, we both know, I think maybe I'm, I'm a, I'll be a little bit more cruder in the way that uh, I'll characterize some <laughs> of it. But it was the people in D3, foot, D3 athletics have come to think of themselves in a kind of way that I think people in D1 athletics used to. And everyone in D1 mm-hmm. athletics thinks of themselves as if it's like high level pro sports. And it's just this constant upping of the expectations and the time and everything that's involved with it that just makes athletes' lives in college just basically impossible unless you're already 
a really kind of overachieving student who can do both. Yeah. Um, yeah. Nobody can balance. There's no balance there. It's right. basically just like, you know, you're sacrificing sleep or sanity or in some kind of way, really compromising your, what you're doing in school um, in general, just to be able to perform your commitments. You know what I mean? Yeah. No, I mean, I I tell them now openly, like basically it's only unicorns that can be successful, right? Like if you don't have all of the cards aligned before you get to college in terms of right and walk, (laughs) right. In terms of like wealth, prestige, race, health. And then if literally nothing bad happens to you in college, right? Like you don't have a family member that passes or like you don't have to work on the side, you know, like all of these things have to align. And they're just so like told that, you know, everyone, can do this. Whereas like what you all were saying earlier, it's like the very exceptional people, you know, and also, you know, their positionality and all that stuff. Yeah. Um, And plus just like an enormous amount of luck. And I think that, and, and so, and also what you were saying about audience, I think is, is really, you know, on, on the money in a lot of ways. And I'm of two minds about that. On the one hand, Mm -hmm. as a teacher and as somebody who still, you know, is invested in a long-term project of trying to like help young people think critically about the world that they live in and themselves and to undo, to try to help them undo some of the mess that I think our culture puts them in, in lots of ways. Um, not in one particular way or according to one set of ideas, but just to try to get them engaged with that process of thinking about like, who am I and how do I live and what, why do I think the things that I think, uh, Part of that is that it requires nuance to talk about complicated things like how pro sports affect people and how things like, Mm -hmm. you know, violent sports affect people. On the other hand, there's the like punk rocker part of me, which is that (laughs) people don't get those messages across just from, you know, people don't write songs like, hey, could we please have a nuanced discussion about Nazis? Right. They write songs (laughs) called like Nazi punks fuck off and say that. You know what I mean? It's like there's no. In excuse the language, it was, you know, Dead Kennedy's song of that title. And I think that that's one example of a million that you can find in that sort of world that was very, very influential on me as somebody who performed in bands for lots of years, but especially as a, as a fan of that music where putting ideas out there that are radical by whatever standards we live in in our culture, I think is really important. And I think that I certainly didn't grow up in a world where there was anybody saying, like, we should abolish football. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's like, wow, mm-hmm. that's, a, you know, that's still a really yeah. important idea that needs to be articulated yeah. as such. Mm-hmm. And whether mm-hmm. people are willing or able or have the capacity for getting on board with that, like, you know, in some ways, that's a conversation that they are going to have that probably won't be quite as relevant to people, unfortunately, for another 10 or 20 years. Right, um, but you got to make it. A, you got to make it a possible part of the horizon of possibility, exactly, right? Like that's exactly. Yeah. If you don't, yeah. then what seems reasonable to people is let's wait for the newest uh, tech guy to come up with a cool new exactly. helmet that's going to rescue exactly. our brains from getting injured, and we all know that that's not going to happen. Right. Right. Or the yeah. perfect, as you cited before, or the perfect, so-called perfect, of course, in scare quotes, concussion protocol. Yeah. Right. Or whatever right. it is. But it, it's all, yeah, it's all band-aids. Look, and, I, and I actually, I want it, to, it's related to this point and it's something that you were talking about a long time back, but I, I want to make sure we kind of come back around to sure. it because I, I, to me, it's like such an important aspect of this. So you have, you know that you're in some fundamental way that like, 
your father must have experienced some aspect of CTE because of the harm of football, right? Yes. And yet, I, I want to know how you how you process this. We have this concussion industrial complex, right? I yeah. mean, like we have this data, we have this information. You talked about when when Mike Webster's brain was examined. We have League of Denial coming out, right? We have yeah. even the film concussion. We have all of this sort of pop culture information. But the truth is. That when it comes to the consensus statement on concussions in sports, when it comes to the data being produced by the Kevin Guskovich, who is now the chancellor of the University of North Carolina, right? But one of the most esteemed concussion researchers in the world. The final word that the medical concussion industrial complex has to say on concussions right now is indeterminacy. Yes. Right? We don't fundamentally, definitively, beyond a shadow of a doubt, know that there is a direct causal relationship between the head injury suffered in football and the harm people experience compl- in the form it's, of CTE. It's complete horseshit. It's, it's, as, it's as bad as saying that we don't know that there's a link between smoking and lung cancer or that we don't know if there's a link between these forever chemicals that companies have been dumping in our water streams and, you know, our water tables and streams and rivers for a hundred years now and whether people that get really rare and weird cancers in that area are caused from that. It's like, it's a ridiculous and irresponsible claim to make. And the reasons that they're making it are because of everything that isn't about people's health. It's about we don't want to alienate our donors. We don't want to alienate our board, uh, and the board and the you know the the people who are boards and regents for folks that work at universities are typically people who come from the private sector and are usually very wealthy, and oftentimes went to the same schools. Usually do are certainly boosters of athletics, and they know that if they come out with hardline statements that offend the sensibilities of those kinds of people, the people who govern and get funding and are big donors to universities, that they will be in trouble. And that's fundamentally what motivates that. Yes, I'm sure there's a small, very concerned, very hardline, hardcore wing of scientists that will consistently remind you that, yes, you cannot definitively 100% prove that this causes this in the same way that we know how gravity works, right? But those are not the kind of people who are responsible for making decisions about what kind of scientific information gets out there. It's, it, the, their concerns are epistemological and right. you know they're, right. they're inside baseball when it comes to like the scientific community. <laughs> they're not the kinds of questions that are the ones that are most germane to people's public health, the same way that the reason people don't point to the link between cancers and pollution from certain companies, specific companies, is not because those problems don't exist. It's because those companies carry lots of sway with politicians and all that sort of stuff, right? Stuff that is, why, if you're not, I think, not doing at least kind of a baseline Marxist or Marxist-ish analysis of like, class relations and the way that capitalism functions, even if you're a, somehow a fan of it, right? The way that the, 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 re, the real <laughs> yes. world reality of how that, the nastiness of how it works is that it requires lies to keep it functioning well. And part of that is having, as I think, as you rightly put, you know, these, these, uh, they're not always apologists, but they're certainly deflectors in ways where, you know they have enough data 
to make advisable, strong, and influential claims that could save people's lives and redirect conversations around things like sports and especially about football and its safety. And they don't. And the reason they don't is not be just because they, yes, they technically can't prove A equals B. It's That's not the reason. The reason is because it will piss off too many people and that will be bad business in some way. And that's the fundamental reality of why so much of this stuff hasn't shifted. It's why the NFL will never, you know, until they're so guilty that they can't do anything about it and then they're backed up into a corner where all the tricks that they used over the years to deflect, deny everything about concussions is in their face and accessible to the public, then then and only then can they start to take a different strategy. But it's certainly not to tell people like, hey, don't have your kids playing this game because then people will be like, well, if it's bad for kids, then like, what about the adults? Right? So it, it has to be a whole different kind of conversation about safety and about protocols. And, you know, there's lots of people who are more than willing to use their legitimate or borrowed skepticism about, you know, what the data really yields um, to be wishy-washy about football. And Exactly. You know, and can I tell you, I, I got to say, this stuff makes me, like, makes me lose my mind. 100%. Uh, I mean, it's, no, it's, but, it's enraging. my dad didn't play. They, they subjected your own fault. Like, that's the yeah. thing. It's like, I, I don't know how I could possibly hold it together if I knew my own family member had been put through this and I was being gaslit every day by these people who are supposedly the experts on the subject and yet they're being paid by the NFL yeah. to deny these links. And, and thinking about players like, you know, my, my brother's, my brother's godfather played t uh, tight end and, and tackle for the Steelers for, or his, his, his godparents, his godmother, her husband, um, Larry Brown is, uh, played for the Steelers for many years. And like, he's also somebody who's very lucky that he didn't have far more debilitating injuries for the amount of years that he played. Um, but especially for players of his generation who are black players like him, you know, all the stuff that's happened when the NFL and the you know, creating entire tiers and, and financial classifications for certain kinds of injuries, relying on models of of like the human body that attributed literally more financial value to white players' bodies than black players' bodies in settlements. I mean, it's just it's it's madness. You know, I mean, it's like that level of dehumanization of of how people are treated fundamentally. Like at, like when push comes to shove, when you get away outside of all the the culture and representations, everything. When these people are in courts of law and are dealing with their attorneys and dealing with their money, how, what are they forced to do at the end of the day and how do they approach it? That this is what they do, right? They come up with, they come up with models of how they're going to pay people out for lifetime injuries that pays people less because their bodies don't matter as much because of who they are and their race. That's how the NFL operates. Right. And I think that that is just, it's so, it's so, and I hate throwing around, I, I do it a lot. So I apologize for throwing around terms like insane or crazy. I don't mean it in a way that's like offensive, especially given the nature of the conversation about, you know, a, a, a slight on mental illness. It's just, the, I don't know. English is bad for, I think, having good descriptors to talk about, you know, words like what we think is just, is just bananas and, and loco for people to do and, and actual mental illness. So should have said Absolutely. that up front. Um, cause I no. do, I throw that around a lot. Like this is insane. This is crazy. And if we're talking about mental illness, it's like not the best, <laughs> not the best language to use. And I know that, but it's, um, I, it is for me as somebody who like, and it's also for him being on the wave before that really became known, 
you know, I also feel like I would have, you know, I would have liked to have some some compensation from the from the NFL about of from yeah. his death the way that other people's did, you know, or, or at least something as a player. And as you know, I think it's 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 just it's brutally offensive in the kind of way that they treated people's families for years. Because my dad, again, because my dad died so young, I didn't have to do all the fighting in court and all of that stuff. And I and I and when I was thinking about all this, I was actually reminded of a question you asked earlier, which was that when I realized that, I, and I actually I do think I kind of pinpointed some of this in my head and didn't occur to me until I started working on the project about CTE. There was a player that was a college recruit. My dad may have recruited him out of high school. I'm not sure. His name is Brian DeMarco, played for Michigan State, an enormous, like at the time, probably one of the biggest linemen maybe in college history. He was huge, like six foot eight, six nine. Uh, total stud player for Michigan State, played pro ball. I saw an article about him years later, and this is somebody who I was around a lot because those are the years uh, I was on the field for my dad. This is pre- uh, pre-wireless headsets so you'd have people like that followed around coaches like little helpers winding their cords as they walked up and down the field so they didn't trip people <laughs> uh <laughs> it was a really like, nice way for me to get a i could watch all the i like i watched all the games when i was 12 and 13 for michigan state on the field doing that job um so i was around this guy a lot i saw him years later in a profile in the new york times about severe bodily injury it may have been one of the first pieces that touched on on CTE, actually, uh, maybe might have been written by one of the Fanaroos as well. There was a picture of Brandon Marco walking upstairs with his wife, who looked like it was about as big. It, it, the picture also reminded me of the size dynamic between like my dad and my mom. She was much tinier than he was. The picture is from a step or two below, and he's basically using her as like a crutch, and she mm-hmm. looks like she's about five three and he's like six foot seven and mangled his body is destroyed and seeing that cycle i think that everything that it entailed from the way i'd get excited about you know learning this insider information about college players before the public knew about them because you know my dad either went to go watch them play in high school or occasionally brought me with him on some of those trips too to watch players you know at their high school games that he was recruiting um, or I knew that kind of insider information and then seeing them be stars on the field and then they go to the pros and, you know, I love that stuff as a kid and like knowing all the stats and everything and seeing him in that kind of position was one of the things that like really hit home for me as far as like what this does to you. And in a way we're like, this guy is so big and powerful, you know, it's somehow like more reasonable when you think about people who are running backs or wide receivers because they're the targets of being hit um, to have limps or to have problems, but not seeing somebody that was like quite somebody that like was a giant compared to my dad, which very few people are Um, and seeing him just so, so badly injured uh, was, Mm. was definitely one of the moments in hindsight. um, I was just, as I was thinking through some Michigan state memories, I just remembered that. Yeah. Well, Zach, we could talk to you all day, um, but thank you so much. You've been incredibly generous with your time. And um, I wanted to say this earlier, but didn't get a chance to. But yeah, just like thank you so much for sharing all of this. And clearly, like you've done a lot of 
hopefully, hopefully you've done a lot of like processing, but um, I imagine that talking about this still is not easy for you. And just thanks so much for opening up and being willing to share, share these really vulnerable experiences. We really appreciate it. I really appreciate you having me on. And again, I just want to reiterate like how important I think the the podcast is and how great of a resource it is as both, uh, you know, a sometimes sports scholar and uh, a longtime teacher to have a have a resource that I can actually point people to and have folks listen to something that, you know, are these important sustained conversations about um, sport that I'm, I'm really grateful for you guys doing and um, wish you all the, the best of luck. And it's really nice to actually get to get to chat with some of y'all after, you know, having a bunch of exchanges over the years online. Yeah, for sure. And I was like, oh, we're finally talking to Zach. Yeah. I was like excited because we've same. been, yeah, we've been, we've been chatting on Twitter for so long. Same, same. So this was awesome. Thanks, Jack. Thanks so much. Of course. Take care, Nathan. <laughs>